0: Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's Family and Associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice.
1: Good morning, Lucy. Great to be chatting with you on a Monday morning, starting the week off right Last week, I said to somebody that markets right now are like surfing Tamarama, a local surf beach here in Sydney, at high tide. It's a lot of water moving around, hard to find a peak to paddle into. And it's tricky. It's really, really tricky. And maybe that's too surfy a reference. But I think it gives people a sense of the many cross-currents that are evident today, making it hard to form a central view on what to do in markets. And it's tempting to be fundamentally bearish, certainly there's lots of educated perspectives there, but there are many technical indicators which are remarkably positive. So today I'm gonna talk a little bit about leads and lags and cross currents, and focus on the fact that right now doesn't matter But the future, it's going to be pretty darn interesting.
0: Thank you so much, Gavin. Good morning, everybody. And welcome back to this week's Tomorrow's News. I'm back in the hot seat interviewing Gavin and getting his thoughts. I think there's some few things happening and also with FOMC coming up in a couple of weeks. Very excited to get into our discussions today.
1: I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about... The US consumer housing and the FOMC. I'm going to talk about China and my view that 5% is still going to take a lot of hard work on the stimulus front. And you're going to talk about oil because I think oil is worth paying attention to. First, let's identify what the market has identified, which is through January and February, Americans did what Americans do, and that is that they spent a lot of money now the great thing about the american consumer is that the american consumer unlike the japanese or the chinese consumer is not great at saving it is great at spending and if you want to create economic growth you do not want savers you want spenders correct so what we've got in the very near term is a positive consumer trend and it's much more positive than what the market was expecting Mm -hmm. and the question is how long does it last In my mind, what does it look like in 6 or 12 months? Mm -hmm. So let's just focus on a figure. Let's focus on the fact that revolving debt, such as credit card debt, is now costing the consumer around 24% annualized. It's a lot. It is really expensive if you've got increasing levels of credit card debt. It is really expensive to finance. Mm -hmm. Now, what's happening along with that, of course... Is, you know we've had this inflation thing i think most people are aware of that because of inflation nominal dollars dollars on credit cards are now at record highs that is credit card outstanding balances are at record highs and they've been heading this way throughout 2022 and into 2023 mm. now they're heading this way because of inflation when a meal goes from being $50 in a restaurant to being $75 or $80 You put it on your credit card, well, that's a massive increase. But what really does matter, of course, is whether or not people can pay for what they've spent. Yes. So, very interesting trends around delinquencies. They are not heading up quickly. That is, the number of 90 day delinquencies are not rising quickly. But these are not the kinds of things that rise quickly in an economy that is well-supported from an employment perspective mm-hmm. and when real incomes are actually quite robust. That means, price. forget all the people that tweet about Amazon laying off people yes. and Snap laying off people. That's kind of irrelevant. It's 3% of the market. It matters over the long term. It doesn't matter in the short term. In the short term, the middle of the economy has good wage growth, and robust job prospects.
0: So people are spending more, having more credit card debt, but still being able to pay it off and pay it back at the moment.
1: At the moment. So Mm -hmm. what do we see today? We see today the ability of the consumer to support their debt. Mm -hmm. So the picture, the question is, well, what does it look like in 6 or 12 months? Now, something that people are pointing to about why this might be even more exaggerated in the near term in terms of the spending, the ability for people to pay, is because tax refunds are actually coming through in a very strong way early on in the year, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you got jobs, you got tax refunds, you got cooling inflation from a goods perspective. Consumers are in pretty good shape, okay? And so, What we can observe then is, of course, the financial conditions, credit, availability of credit, and so forth, has actually been easy. Now you're Jerome Powell. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're going to speak to Congress this week. And then we've got the FOMC coming up the 21st. You got a bit of a problem, right? Because if symptoms persist, we're not going to be beating inflation. We're going to have entrenched higher inflation.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And central banks, have this problem. They can see that they're winning the war slowly. But as Powell will tell you, and as any economist will tell you, monetary policy works with a lag. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: how much of the lag? Some say 12 to 18 months. This might be different. It might be 24 months. There is no certainty about the time period where we start to see a material uptick in unemployment. It certainly wasn't in January. Probably isn't in February, but this is the question that Powell has. So right now, markets are of the view, yeah, things look okay. Maybe there's no landing, right? We just sort of cruise on, slowly moderating inflation, slowly moderating a moderate increase to unemployment. We call that the no landing mm. scenario, right? Yes. And that really messes up the bears, really messes them up. Why? Who are the
0: hard landing recession bears,
1: right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they're like, well, Gavin, look at 10-year treasuries over 4%. Look at where two years are. Look at the fact that for six-month cash, the US government's paying you 5%. And I agree with all of that. I Mm. agree with all of that. And I think it will come to bear. It's just not coming to bear today, Okay, So today, we've got the set of factors that are really, really important. And I want to kind of just talk a little bit about housing and then come back to break even inflation. Okay. So, one of the things that's really confusing people is housing. Yes. Shelter is a big part, it's 35 to 40% of the consumer mm-hmm. spend. People are like, well, hang on a second. Interest rates have gone up, mortgage rates have gone up. Mm-hmm. But there's still a huge demand for single family rental units. There's still really robust employment in the housing sector. What's going on here, mm. right? Is housing not interest sensitive? Yes, housing is interest sensitive. But when you think about housing and you think about housing starts and employment, the lag is crucial. Mm. Imagine you started to build a bunch of houses as a developer at some point in 2019 or 2020. Think of all the disruptions you had with COVID and whatever. And you're building away, well, you're not going to be starting any new houses, probably, at this point. You've got to finish all these places. And it's taking you forever, right? Mm-hmm. You've had supply chain issues. You've had employment issues. You've had every kind of issue. So the last thing you're going to do is let go of your employees right now. Mm-hmm. You want to keep them all until it's all finished and you got them all sold. So my view is that construction employment is going to start to peel off here as we get through the end of the summer because we don't have a lot of new housing starts that are likely to appear in this environment, right? But stuff that's got started is going to get finished. Mm -hmm. And so it's not confusing at all, certainly not to me, that we wouldn't see any massive decline in construction employment. And the reason I mentioned this: this is a pretty big component of employment in, in America. And it also is indicative of the fact that you may actually have a relatively soft landing in housing because there aren't going to be that many starts, right? We're going to have to work through all of, you know, work through this old supply, work through the new homes, Mm. work through people who are slowly losing their jobs and need to sell. But this idea of a housing crash, to me, I don't think it's a certainty. Certainly don't see it evident today. but, Mm. But when I look at what, could be positively impacting inflation. It could be the softening employment characteristics in areas like construction.
0: I was reading somewhere that recently a lot of the employment in the US has been driven by the hospitality industry. And that's somewhat offsetting the layoffs that the tech sector has seen. Do you think hospitality, perhaps even healthcare, those areas are going to also be offsetting slowdown in employment in the construction sector.
1: Each of these things, I think, is both regional and importantly, structural issues around Mm -hmm. areas like uh, education and medical care, because you had a lot of older workers in those sectors leave during COVID for mm. health reasons and so forth. My view is it's going to be a slow grind higher in an unemployment, but we are going to be grinding higher in unemployment mm. where we probably are going to grind higher in unemployment more slowly. And it suggests that the, it will take a long time to see materially a higher unemployment is areas like hospitality, medical care, and so forth, because we simply don't have immigration. You don't have the younger workers coming into the workforce the way you did post COVID. There are a lot of changes mm. that have occurred in the workforce that it's not evident that they're shifting quickly. Mm-hmm. And because they're not shifting quickly, I think that those areas will continue to be drivers of uh, demand for workers and increasing wage pressure. right? -hmm. I'm generally of the view that this little inflation-deflation pivot is going to be way harder to read for everybody, myself included, Mm. than this linear idea that we had a bunch of free money, then we took it away, then everything crashes, and then the Fed eases again. Mm. Not going to go that way. Don't know quite how it's going to go. But it's because of many of these, what I would call micro or hyper-local factors Mm -hmm. that play. That's number one. Number two, I want to talk about China. The reason I want to talk about China, and I'm going to talk about it very lightly, is the central thesis of markets is that China reopening is this mad, fantastic driver of global demand and growth. And I'm not sure that that's true. Mm -hmm. But because I'm not sure that that's true, I think there's something more positive on the other side. I am very suspicious of the view that the Chinese consumer will perform like the U.S. consumer in reopening.
0: Why do you say that?
1: (laughs) The Chinese consumer has two factors very different. Number one, they're huge savers. As a structure, they're better savers than spenders. Secondly, a huge part of their wealth is in real estate, which yes. is plummeted in value. So you've got a massive negative wealth effect. And lastly, what COVID did for the Chinese consumer is the opposite of what it did in the West, which is the government didn't wheel in with a massive stimulative program to say, we gotcha. Mm-hmm. In fact, what they did is they said, we gotcha locked up, and then later we'll release you. My view is it causes the consumer to go back, look, and say, "Mm, I probably need to be more careful now, because if anything disruptive occurs in the future, I better be prepared, which means I don't think they're going to be as quick to overconsume. Lastly, the problem China has is too much debt, too much debt at every level of the economy. And when you've got all of that debt, now, China tried to take back a lot of that liquidity from the real estate sector and so forth to to Mm. quite dramatic uh, effect. But their big problem is local governments and banks. Yeah. And all of those entities are going to consume so much of the liquidity that is supposed to end up going through banks, through local governments, and back out into the economy. They're going to consume it because they need it. They're under a lot of pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Effectively, they, they need that liquidity to solve so stay solvent. So I think you're going to see less transmission mm-hmm. through the economy than you might like. That means China have to be massively more stimulative to create the kind of domestic demand they're looking for. The other problem they have, and you can see this in some of the data around ports, is the rest of the world is slowing right? So they had this bubble in demand around COVID when everybody needed TVs and furniture and stuff. Well, there's massive inventories, this slowing consumer demand. That means that they're going to need domestic consumption. So I'm bearish on the thematic, reopening China. I fully expect there's going to be a great time to buy Chinese equities It's probably more of a technical trade than anything. Mm -hmm. I think it's an important element to global liquidity, massively important to global liquidity, right? Because the Fed and the ECB are taking out liquidity and China and Japan are injecting it. Mm -hmm. And so for
0: investors, you know, how should we be thinking about our China exposure in the short term?
1: I have a view that Chinese stocks are like meme stocks, right? You trade them, you don't own them. Right? Not that these aren't good companies, but you really have no ability to understand in any structured way whether or not changes in the macro or changes in government policy are about to upend your investment. One of the great things about America is it takes a long time to make change, right? The challenge of more authoritarian, centrally planned economies are just deem something to be true. Those are good and bad characteristics, but it means that you can trade that market. I'm long a little Alibaba and some Chinese stocks at the moment, just because I think there's a trade in them. I'm not sure I'm right. I don't have super high conviction, maybe 60% conviction there. But I think that they come off too much and I think that there's another wave here. On the other hand, I do think that Australia will benefit on a fairly consistent basis from improved Chinese relationship. And even if I'm wrong about everything I'm saying about domestic and reopening, that that the reopening is stronger, that's just even better for Australia. I know that there's lots of different views back and forth about what will happen with the RBA this week. But my view is interest rates in Australia continue to go higher. Aussie dollar, you know, I think continues to trend higher. Maybe not this week, but over time.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, watch this space. And lastly, before we wrap up for today, oil. Why should we be paying attention to oil?
1: We should be paying attention to oil because the market's in a really interesting structure at the moment in that you've had less spending than is required to really re-energized the space as ESG sort of took hold in the U.S. Remember, the U.S. is a major producer of oil. You've had less spending. That's, I think, about to pivot here. You've got Russia that really only has two customers now. So they're less disruptive, but they also have less capacity to really massively expand their consumption. The U.S. reserves Have been depleted. People have kind of gone to sleep a little on oil. We had that moment in the 130s. We worked our way all the way back to the long term average in sort of the 70s area. And it's an area where the surprise here is a move, I think, from 80 to 100. Mm. And why I think that matters is that I think it's going to surprise people about what the knock on effects are in inflation in other areas. So you better be paying attention to oil, even if you're not trading it. Mm. And it strikes me that there's also the CTA's—the sort of real technical money—has been massively underweight the space. Mm. So you've you've got this moment of potential inflection. Now, I'm not a peak oil guy. I don't think oil is going to 200 bucks, barring new information. Certainly, there's no information I have that is evident there. But I think that. The derivative impacts in places like Japan, you know, in terms of what how they they behave, in terms of U.S. consumer and inflation. You want to put the U.S. consumer under pressure, raise gas prices from approximately three to approximately four dollars. These things are all hanging in the balance. Yeah. Right as the Fed is putting pressure on, this is a moment. Right now it doesn't mean this week. This is a moment. It's worth watching to see how it develops. I'm on a little oil, I'm not long XLE. I think space is going to be really, really interesting. Most often, when we set up like this, mm. oil is more likely, and, and this is probably the better trade, oil is more likely to make a move to 80, and then it moved to 65, which right. will confirm for every bear out there on oil, which there would be many, and that oil is not, it's done for a generation, and that's probably mm-hmm. the boss. Of course, we have to wait and see. But sometimes that's the way these things go. And it, that could be the really interesting dynamic in the economy as well. Oil drops, people get bullish, and then we get this reacceleration. So could be interesting for the balance of the year.
0: Very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Gavin. It's always a pleasure. And we will be back next week.
1: Look forward to it. Thank you, Lucy. Thank
0: you.